Now, the past couple of weeks, we've done our very best in our message times to encourage you. We understand that you're going through a difficult time with, with your family and your friends and your neighbors and, and just looking for hope and encouragement from God's Word. But today what we want to do is we want to kind of turn a corner and we want to begin to equip you. Let me tell you how. I'm a, I'm a news watcher. Um, or, or a news reader, not much of a, of a watcher, but when I have turned on the news these past few weeks, I've noticed the plur, 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 uh, I've noticed several things. I've noticed I can't say this word. Proliferation of, of experts who are on commenting, giving their opinion about the, the things that are going on in our world right now. Health experts, financial experts, political experts, all weighing in and giving their opinion on what to expect, how to address it, when it'll be over, etc., etc., etc. Now, here's the deal. It's very likely that some of you will be considered experts on an aspect of this crisis, maybe not by news channels, but by friends, family, neighbors. You'll be considered the religious expert on all of this. And you're saying, well, now, wait a minute, I, I, I'm not a religious expert, but if you're the only one among your neighbors and friends and family who attend church, those people are going to look to you as being the religious expert. And as the religious expert in your little circle of friends, you'll be asked to opine on the theological meaning of all of this. Now, it won't be that... Uh, carefully worded, distinctly worded, it, but, but you will hear questions that will sound something like this. You go to church, don't you? Why would God let this happen? Or it might be, you go to church, don't you? Well, why doesn't God just stop this in its tracks? And you'll be on, expert. So let me ask you, are the words that you're going to say in response to those questions going to help those asking? Or will your words hurt those asking? After the calamitous series of events detailed in Job 1 and 2, which we spent time looking at together last week, a time when Job lost his possessions, when Job lost his family, when Job lost his health, Job is a completely broken man. And he has friends, three friends hear about it. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they decide that they're going to drop everything, and they're going to come and help their friend. And Job is so physically wrecked by sickness and grief that when they see him from a distance, they don't even recognize him, and they weep, and they mourn with their friend. And, and this is beautiful, when they get to him, they just sit there with him in silence for seven days, and for seven nights. And then Job speaks. If you have your Bibles available to you, why don't you find Job chapter 3, verse 1. It says in verse 1, after this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let the let the day be darkness. May God not seek it, nor, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, 
Let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? In the entire chapter from that point on, albeit very poetically, Job is just over and over saying it would have been better had I never been born. Seven days, seven nights, broken by a shriek of pain from a man who wants to die but can't. He even says that in verse 20. It says, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter soul who long for death? but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures. It's just awful to read those words. But as you continue reading them, you'll hear, you'll hear a preview of the questions that you may be asked by your friends and neighbors. Look at verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, from whom God is hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest. But trouble comes. What's Job saying? Job's saying, I can't figure this out. I don't know why any of this has happened. He's saying to his friends, why would God let this happen to me? Why doesn't God stop this. And now it's time for his friends, the experts, to weigh in and pray. And I mean pray that you provide better counsel than these three clowns. They may mean well, but they're all being driven, controlled by a flawed belief. And that belief is the idea that only sinners suffer. And because this idea is so ingrained in them, literally everything that they're going to say to try to help Job is warped by it, damaging and wounding him more deeply with every single word they speak. Each one of these friends are going to take their turn in speaking, and in speaking, each of them represent a different way why this belief that only sinners suffer is so flawed. The first is this. This belief misrepresents. This belief misrepresents. And Eliphaz will speak first. Some believe that he speaks first because he's the oldest and supposedly the wisest of the three. And he actually doesn't start off all that bad. I'm just going to be honest with you. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Timonite answered and said, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. You've been the one, Job, that has given counsel before. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. You've helped people when you've spoken to them in the midst of things like this. But now it's come to you, he says in verse 5, and you're impatient, touches you. And you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence 
He's, he's doing actually what we should all try to do when we find people who are in the midst of difficulty. We should attempt to take their eyes off of their problem and look to the sufficiency of God to find their confidence in God. And everything that is within me wants to say to Eliphaz right now, stop! Don't say another word! Shh. Just be quiet. But he can't. He goes on and says this, the last part of verse 6. He says that the first part is not your fear of God, your confidence, and then this, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Here's why you suffer, Job. Clearly, you have sinned. There can be no other explanation. And the rest of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 is Eliphaz bludgeoning Job with that point. You have sinned. There's no other explanation. And he says it over and over and over again. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. Can a mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? We're all sinners, Job. And because of that, look at chapter 5, verse 6. Because of that, affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. All of us are going to sin, Job. You must have. This is the explanation. You've sinned and God is punishing you. But in chapter 6 and 7, Job cries out, I haven't. I have not. In fact, look at the the last verse of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 30, Job, in, in answering Eliphaz, said, Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? He says, you've seen me. I'm a righteous man. I live to please God. Don't you think I would taste the presence of sin in my life, if, don't you think I would know it if I had sinned? He's not claiming, as some people incorrectly understand, that, that he, Job, has never, ever sinned. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that he cannot discern in his life the presence of any specific sin that would have brought this calamity upon him. And yet Eliphaz says there can be no other answer, and in so doing, he is misleading Job. Now, why is this belief that only sinners suffer so misleading? Well, it's misleading for a couple of reasons. First, it misleads others into believing that you actually know what you're talking about. Each one of Job's friends, with absolutely no hesitation says the calamity in Job's life exists because of God's judgment, and they do not have a clue. I've already heard this during this pandemic. You have too. God is judging our country, our world, because of its sins. Or, I've heard this, maybe God is judging the church for its sins. And He may be. Or this may be His plan to bring our country and our world to Him in revival. But here's the deal. You and I don't know. We simply don't know. So maybe we should take a break 
from making definitive claims about knowing what is behind all of this or from saying that judgment for sin is the root of all of this, lest we be told by God like he says to Job's friends towards the end of the book, my anger burns against you for you have not spoken of me what is right. You have attributed something to me that's wrong, friends, and so maybe we should stop acting like we know exactly what's going on. It misleads, but there's another way it misleads. The technical term for the framework for understanding God by which Eliphaz was operating is retributive justice, which is just fancy talk for saying that we get what we deserve from God. If you do well, you'll be blessed. If you do poorly, you'll get punished. But this is a woefully incomplete understanding of who the God of Scripture is. Because while it is true that God blesses obedience and that disobedience can bring consequences, this is not the basis of God's interactions with us. Grace is the basis of his interactions. So God blesses, not because we deserve it, but because of his grace. And God disciplines us, not because he's wanting to destroy us, but instead because he is wanting to restore us. So God will sometimes bring suffering into our lives, not because he's punishing, but because he's drawing us to himself in salvation, or as he is with Job, he's providing an opportunity for us to glory in his sufficiency, to be able to say, in spite of everything that is going on with us, God is enough. And when we communicate that only sinners suffer, we're testifying to the goodness of God of Scripture. We're misrepresenting God as nothing more than the dispenser of karma. This belief misrepresents. But also, this belief misleads After Eliphaz has said his piece, Bildad pipes up, and all he does is advance the argument that Eliphaz has made, but with this key change. He essentially is telling Job, hey, look, buddy, you need to repent. Eliphaz had had danced around that. He had not actually said it. He had tried to get Job to embrace the idea that everyone's a sinner and, and that punishment is the result of sin, and that's why you're suffering, but he never outright calls upon Job to repent. Bildad, however, does. I want you to listen to his opening words to Job in Job chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. How long will you say these things in the words of your mouth, be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? And this is, this is callous beyond belief. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Quit crying about your kids who were killed. Job, if they sinned, they got what they deserved. How's that for a friend? He goes on in verse 5. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Because Bildad, like Eliphaz, has badly 
misunderstood God. He completely lacks any ability to give Job any counsel that can give him any help at all in his grief. His only advice is to repent. But Job has no need to repent of a specific sin because a specific sin had not brought any of this about. Like we saw a moment ago, he would know it. This is what he tells his friends. I would taste it in my mouth if unrighteousness that had caused this was in me. In fact, Job has actually actually spent time considering if some unknown calamity uh, or if some unknown sin had brought this calamity upon himself. That's just kind of a basic instinct for a righteous person, one who's dedicated to pleasing God. If something comes in, the first thing they're going to ask, have I done anything? And Job himself had done that. I want you to look at his response to Bildad where that becomes clear. In Job chapter 10, verse 15, it'll be on your screens. If I am guilty, he says, woe to me. If I'm in the right, I cannot lift my head up, for I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. Essentially what he is saying is, God, if I have sinned, I am coming to you now and saying, show me what it is. But do you also see in his words to God the confusion and despairs that, that Bildad's advice has brought upon him? He doesn't know what to do. Bildad's belief that only sinners suffer has misled Job into believing that there has to be something, and so he continues to dig for a something that is not there, and his despair only deepens when he cannot find what that thing is. This belief that only sinners suffer mislead people when they're trying to find their way through a trial. But this belief finally mistreats people. We've already seen a glimpse of it in Bildad's callous words about the death of Job's children. But the words of his third friend, Zophar, are just kind of next level callous. I want you to look at the opening words of Job chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, when he begins to speak. He says, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your, and he's speaking to Job here, listen to these words, should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure and I'm clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then, listen to this, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. <laughs> what's wrong with this guy? I mean, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with him ultimately is that he believes that only sinners suffer. And what has that done in his spirit? It's made him unsufferably righteous self-righteous. His reasoning's like this. This is the reason he's able to talk, talk to Job. You're suffering. You must be a sinner. I'm not, so I must not be a sinner. And that allows him to be self-righteous and judgmental toward his friends and not blink an eye. Job correctly calls out Zophar with this biting rebuke in uh, verse 5 of chapter 12. He says to him, 
well, hang on. And now I may be wrong. Oh, here it is. I've got it. Here's what it says. Job speaking to Zophar, in the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. He, he, he is, is saying, the reason you're able to talk to me this way is because you're doing well right now. And you've convinced yourself that because only sinners suffer, um, and you're not, that, that you're righteous and I am not. And his friend that he came to help is being mistreated by his words. Job is in agony. He wishes he had never been born. And his friends help him out by telling him, you must have had this coming. We want to be better friends. We want to be better advisors, experts. When our friends come to us in their uncertainty about what is going on or when someone they love gets sick or when they lose their job, how can we help them? In closing, I would suggest that you do three things. First, listen. Just listen. Really listen to the concerns that the person has, the fears, the uncertainty. Remember that Job's friends were at their best when they weren't trying to explain anything, when they were just there, when they were being quiet with their friend. So, so listen to those who are grieving around you. Then ask. It's likely that those around you who would look to you either are, are outside the faith or they're very immature in their faith. So ask them the right kinds of questions after you've really heard them. Ask them if they really are followers of Jesus, if they have surrendered themselves fully to Jesus as Lord of their lives and placed all of their hopes in Him for forgiveness for their sins and for their salvation. And if they have not, then share your story of following Jesus with them. Talk to them about how Jesus has been able to, to sustain you in times of calamity in your life, in times of trial in your life. Talk to, to your friends about His sufficiency for you in all things. But, but if you're convinced after you talk to them that they're followers of Jesus, then ask some more probing questions. Those Job, though Job's friends were, were wrong in believing that only sinners suffer, it's clear that the experience of calamity that Job had faced had caused him to examine his life more deeply in case there actually was some area of disobedience that he hadn't been aware of that he needed to confess. So in this sense, the experience of trial had served to refine the righteousness of a righteous man. You can help that process in your neighbor or in your friends who are working through these important questions as they are Jesus followers, maybe immature Jesus followers, by helping them see, is there anything in their life that has started to supersede God. So, so help followers of Jesus who have come to you with questions process their experience. Ask them if their fears reveal that they're placing more hope in their health or in their family or job or finances for peace than the only one in whom true peace can be found. But if, like Job, they can't see anything amiss in their lives that would have led them to their trial, to their suffering, ask them one more question. Ask them how you can help. Sometimes people really 
don't need somebody to explain everything. They just need someone. Be that someone. Ask them how you can help. And then finally, declare the truth about the Lord. Declare the truth that God is the one in control of the experience and the extent of suffering. Declare the truth that trials serve God's good purposes in our lives, giving us an opportunity to glory in His sufficiency. Because while there is great mystery to the relationship between God's will and human suffering, we do know that He is causing all things to work together for the good, for those who love God, and for those who are called according to His purpose. This week or next, when someone comes to you and says, you go to church. Why did God let this happen? You go to church. Why doesn't God stop this? Rather than try to give them a sound bite that tries to make them feel better, listen to them in their grief. Ask them about Jesus. And then finally, declare his goodness. And at the end of the day, that's what we know we can do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.